when I'm interviewing people, I want to check that they're curious. Do they have good questions for me? Are they asking about the business? Do they want to understand more about the role, how they can be successful? Are they interested in the product? You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today's episode has some really good friends talking about a topic that is one that really is like 80% of the challenges that I hear a lot of founders are struggling with, which is hiring, motivating, and transitioning high-performing talent within their organizations. And to host this chat along with me, we have talent manager at Seedcamp, Alex Lewis, and two amazing guests, which I love very dearly, Sophie Adelman, co-founder and CEO at The Garden, and co-founder of Multiverse, and Sile Magos, the founder of MetaView, a Seedcamp company. They're both going to share their stories, so don't worry, just hang on. But we are mm-hmm. going to start off with Sophie sharing her story. First of all, both of you, welcome. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful Thanks to be here. The way that we like to start things off a little bit is from the moment you graduated college, just because it's always fun to hear what people did right after college. And then maybe just give us a quick sort of run through of where you got to in terms of your first job, what you did, just to give people a sense of what your life was like to get to where you are today. So Sophie, let's start off with you. Tell us a little bit more about that first job. Oh my gosh, how long have you guys got? Because I'm quite a geriatric founder now. So (laughs) I've I've had lots of twists and turns. I'm going to give you the rapid version. Excellent. So after I graduated from college, my first job actually was in conferencing. So I took a job. I actually had a place to do another degree. And I thought, no, I can't do this anymore. I'm done with academia for now. I want to get out into the real world. But I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything to do. So I think I found my first job at the back of like the Guardian or the Times newspaper, or maybe even in the, sort of the Metro, I can't even remember. And it was in conferencing, which most people don't think about as a career. I definitely hadn't. But it was an amazing experience because it taught me about how to build a company. At the time, I think I thought, oh, all my friends are in banking and law and all consulting, which is I ended up going into banking, so for my sins. But for the first year, I worked in conferencing. And as a conference producer, you're given a title of a conference. And your job is to go and build that business. So you have a sales team, you have a sponsorships team, you have a marketing team, you have an events team. And your job is to go and recruit speakers, to put the program together, to write the copy, to be the face of the conference on the day. An incredible first experience because it taught me how to sell. It taught me how to think about building a business and how to grow it. I had to, as a 22-year-old, go out and be the face of a conference. My first conference was in defense logistics and procurement, which is deeply fascinating. But I actually have like an amazing little plaque from the Defense Logistics Organization of China when they came over with their delegation and met some five-star generals. But I did that. My ego probably got the better of me. I ended up going to banking during the financial crisis, 2007, 2008, left there, and then got my first foray into the talent world. So I spent a couple of years working at an organization called Egon Zender as an associate consultant there. And I went there because after banking, I wanted to work with nice people. And it was an amazing place of wonderful people who sort of in their second career, I felt I could learn from. And I think as people think about the jobs they go into, I think working with people you can learn from in the early stage of your career is so important. It's the most important thing. 
but I got this insight into how companies think about hiring senior talent, how they assess them for competency-based assessment, how they think about building their teams, how they think about building their boards, how they think about searching for people, how to assess people. So that was my first foray in talent, and that has been a thread throughout my career. So fast forward, I went off to business school, I came back, I went back into finance. Again, I'm not sure why, though I had an amazing experience. I worked in sort of an investment firm. And then I started in the world of tech and I worked for a company called Hired.com, which was at the time a very small organization, primarily on the West Coast, and they were hiring their first international hire. And I joined them. I applied for a GM role. I was totally underqualified to be a GM because having only worked in basic finance for the last couple of years. But they took a punt on me. And my job was to run around London or Uber around London at that time. I called it like my mobile office. I sat in the back and sent emails and pitched to hiring managers and heads of people across London to take on this new platform, this new marketplace approach to recruitment. So I ran that team and built up that team in the UK and then in France for about two and a half years. And that was really interesting from a talent point of view, because not only was I hiring my own team and building that team and that culture, anyone knows when you're the international lead for a US company, you do have to build your own team and culture. And actually, I'd love to come back to talk a bit more about how hired hired people because they had an incredible process that I still use to this day. The founders there were amazing hiring leads. But I also got insight into how other companies were hiring. And we were giving advice about how to give feedback, how to give a good candidate experience, how to think about what you need. And then on the other side, we were working with the candidates. What's a good, great candidate experience? So I did that. And then I decided to start my own company. And that's where I met my co-founder, Ewan. Um, we started White Hat, now Multiverse, which is building an outstanding alternative to university. Multiverse is doing really well right now. We just launched in the US, working with thousands of apprentices across the UK in companies like Google and Facebook and amazing industries and helping them develop skills around digital marketing, data science, software engineering, and business skills. We just raised a Series D this year, and the company's doing incredibly well under Ewan and the rest of the leadership team's leadership, though I stepped back just under two years ago now and stayed on the board for a year, but uh, decided I wanted to get back to building at the early stages again. And that leads me to today. I now run a a startup called The Garden, OneGarden.com, with my co-founder, Simon Lambert, who worked at a CTO for many years at at places like Treatwell and Moo, and he was at lastminute.com. So between us, we have a lot of experience on the people side and Simon's built incredible engineering teams. And I learn a lot from him around how to hire and retain and motivate engineering talent, as well as generally think about culture. And we're building at the garden, a community for the curious. What that means is it's an innovative learning platform where you can learn for the joy of learning from world-class academics and other leading minds in a really easy, enjoyable, joyful way where you can ask questions, you can feel in the room wherever you are in the world, and you get that experience of lighting up your mind again, which many of us lose when we leave school or university. So we just started that and very early days, but it's an exciting adventure. And obviously it gives me the opportunity to think about how do you build a team again? Wow. Some amazing anecdotes there that we want to unpack. And maybe before we move on to you, Sile, I'd love to hear, Sophie, like if you were to like look back at some of those transition points in in life, is there any one circumstance or one anecdote that stands out as being a defining moment in how you think about people in an organization? Is there something that stands out there? So I I will go back to the hired experience because hired, I always say, was a bit like a talent vortex. 
in a positive way, but the one where they're pulling people in. Many of the people who worked at Hired have since gone on to build their own companies. It's bit like the PayPal mafia, you've kind of got the hired mafia, people are spun out and started their own companies in the talent space, but in other businesses too. And I think the reason for that was because of the high standard that the founders set about hiring the talent. So they hired amazing people, really, really smart people, but really driven entrepreneurial talent. And the way that they focused on that was, I remember Style was talking about the WHO method earlier. I think we're going to talk a bit more about that, but they used the WHO method and they were very, very keen on looking for examples of excellence in people's background, but also looking very deeply for red flags. A lot of us, when we interview people, when we reference people, have a confirmation bias. We want to hear what we want to hear. We want to hear that somebody was great. We want to hear that somebody was exceptional. And actually, one of the things that Matt Miskovich, one of the founders of Hired, taught me was you need to be looking for the red flags. In fact, you need to be taking verbatim notes when you're doing a kind of walkthrough of somebody's history, they call it a top grading interview, and you take the notes and then you read it back later. Because in the moment, it's very hard to process the flags. You're listening to somebody speak, you're thinking about your next question. Whereas when you go back and read the notes, that's when you go, oh, they just threw their former boss under the bus. Or "Mm, it's really interesting that they said that. I want to dig into that again. So some of these things were really useful for me as I think about hiring in the future. Awesome, which I think is an amazing transition for you, Sile, because I think when your story comes to where we are today, I think what you're building has some of those features built in, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed, yeah. All right, so tell us about you know your first job after... Cool. Uh, yeah, really excited to jump in on some of those things that Sophie mentioned, but going back a bit, so I graduated also actually or around the financial crisis in 2008 was flirting with a transition or a conversion course to study law, was actually about to press the button to enroll, but then decided to maybe plow a different path. And since then, I've really been a career product person. So kicked off as a product strategy analyst, as they were called, at Betfair, pre-IPO days, working a lot on our mobile product strategy. And for that point on, just really caught the bug for building technology to solve problems in more efficient ways, which is really what all of us spend our time doing. And pretty much every company you invest in, I guess, Carlos, is doing that in some other sort of corner of the planet or corner of of industry. So yeah, spent a chunk of time working in products, joined a startup as head of product, then went on to join Uber. And that's really where I came to think I guess, deeply about the talent problem. It really felt like a bit of the eye of the storm. Even as someone who was, you know, I was a product lead on the driver payments team. So very focused on a very specific problem for our customers, for Uber drivers. But actually a massive chunk of my job was hiring, whether into the product function that I was in or contributing to the sort of central hiring process of other engineering managers or data scientists or designers. And you really ended up with a pretty broad view of what I would say an aspiring world-class hiring process looked like, but in a world where you had to hire quickly. It was not an option not to make this hire and not therefore achieve this objective. Speed was really important. So yeah, I was there during some of their hyper growth phase and just saw firsthand how important but unreliable the hiring processes were. So it sounds like they had a pretty awesome process and maybe you did it as well. I'm sure you did it at Multiverse as well. But I think there's still this tension with, well, we've got to do this quickly. You're never going to have perfect information. So we do have to make highs. You're going to have to make judgment calls some of the time. And so how do you deal with the tension between speed and sort of certainty around quality is something that I ended up getting really obsessed about. And when I jammed on this problem with Sharia, who's the other co-founder at MetaView, who was experiencing similar, but almost the other side of the coin at Palantir, 
where they were super dogmatic about the quality and they were not willing to sort of move fast in scenarios of being unsure about the quality of an individual, we realized almost the two sides of that coin of this tension where speed was key versus quality was key. So yeah, the fact that hiring, even though recruiting was centralized at Uber, we had a central recruiting team, really hiring decisions were made by managers and by teams and not by the recruiters, right? So actually, in a way, hiring is not centralized, even if recruiting itself is. And there's a massive disparity between how some managers and some teams would interview and would go about the hiring process versus others. Some teams had really robust training and processes. Others tried to implement these scripts. You know, another functional leader would say, hey, we're going to try out the top grading method, but that would be completely invisible and blind to the rest of the organization. And others still would just go about it with no structure. So yeah, all pretty blind, even no matter how much structure they had, everyone was pretty blind to what was actually happening in their interviews and often relying on memory or feelings or really rigorously written verbatim notes, which must have been incredibly stressful to sort of uh, write down in the moment. And that's really what we want to solve is yeah, we build technology to help ambitious companies run amazing interviews. A big chunk of that is capturing them. So you actually know what's happening in interviews and then pulling out interesting data to help folks do better and better over time. Great. So we have the cornerstone of both parts here. We have the whole lead up to an interview process, the interview itself. And I think some of the stories, Sophie, that you and I were chatting at when we last caught up was also like now fast forward, it's been a year, it's been two years. And now you're starting to have good and bad experiences within the team and managing that and then transitioning people within the team, upward, downward, sideways. And that whole life cycle of people management is something that keeps founders awake. 90% of the time, because ultimately it's about the people that you have with you in that journey. So to kick things off on the interviewing side of things, Alex. Yeah, we've touched on so many amazing points there. I can't wait to get into this. And I think one of the biggest challenges that some of our founders face when they first join the portfolio is exactly what we've touched on there. Like, how do I interview properly? How do I adhere to best practice? But how do we do it efficiently? Because, you know, we're on a strict schedule here. So if I'd love to dive into a bit more detail around like your experience with Hired.com and that sort of excellent bar. And I guess what you've learned from your time at Multiverse as well, like how an interview process can scale. But yeah, talk to us about Hired.com. Yeah, so Hired got to sort of close to 200 people. So, you know, we did grow pretty quickly. I'm actually going to reflect a bit on Hired and also my experience at Egon Zendo because the experiences are not that different in terms of, I think, what good best practice looks like. So one of the things I think a lot of people spend too much time on in the interview process is rehashing the work experience run through. Every time a new person meets a candidate, they go through, so tell me about what you did in the past. And that is a waste of time for everyone. You know, you need to be getting to the meat of what that interview should be about. So this is where at Egon Zender, we used to write up a sort of very in-depth walkthrough of somebody's background. That was our job as the executive search consultant to interview the candidate, write up this work history, dig into some of the competency-based areas. So look at their skills, look at their experiences, look at the competencies and write that up for the hiring manager. And in that way, the hiring manager would be able to dig into specific things, not waste their time going back and asking about the work history. Equally, at Hired, one of the things that Matt really instilled in us was this top grading interview for the WHO method. Now, don't follow the WHO method to the T. I think as with all of these kind of frameworks, you need to take it with a little bit of pinch of salt. And it really does depend on your stage of company, the level of granularity that you go into. But the two things I think are really valuable from the WHO method is number one, the top grade. 
because it makes it more efficient and it allows you to really understand what somebody has done in the past, not what they say they've done. And secondly, references, which I know we'll come to later. So with the top grade, what you do, and Sal will probably be able to get, dig into it more, is you really do get somebody to walk through their work history, every single job they've done, and you ask them the same set of questions to really unpack what did they do? What did they do? Not what did their team do? What did they do? What was their role? What did they achieve? What were their failures? Or what did they learn? Why did they leave that role? Because you also want to understand people's career transitions. Interestingly, most people glaze over their career transitions or they sell a story. And what you really want to understand is why somebody left. Because often people do leave because it's a progression for them or because they felt frustrated there wasn't that opportunity for them. But often people leave because they weren't working out. And that could be because they weren't the right fit for the organization, which is fair enough. It could be because there wasn't the opportunity or they were made redundant. All these things are totally reasonable. But it might be that you uncover a flag about somebody's behavior or somebody's performance that you weren't going to be aware of if you just listened to their story. And I think this is particularly important with salespeople. And I'll just raise that as a point, because if you're a good salesperson, you can sell yourself. So I think with salespeople, you can get really lost in the sell and not actually hear the true story underneath. As a funny anecdote, I had a couple of European founders tell me that when they go start hiring in America, because American presentation is such part of the educational curriculum that it's actually quite funny because they have to recalibrate because Americans are just generally very good at selling. So, uh, so that's a pretty so funny anecdote. Yeah, on that side, it'd be good to understand more about the WHO method, what actually that is, how do we define it? And then for our founders, when thinking about what questions work best, are there any best practices or schools around that that you'd recommend? Yeah, the best way to learn more about the WHO method is to read the book, basically. And I won't enumerate every sort of part of that right now. But fundamentally, it's about, as Sophie described, getting a truly detailed understanding of what someone did in their previous roles, what they achieved, why they left. So some of the questions on the list are, what were you hired to do? So why were you brought into this company? If you ask that upfront, you can, of course, when you go and review the interview afterwards, it's probably hard to synthesize in the moment. You can think, you can calibrate on, I know they were hired to do this thing. When they described what they actually did, they're disconnected. And then I know they left after one year. Does that tell me something? And so you can pick up these clues based on how the interview structured. Often you'd ask, what accomplishments are you most proud of? Obviously, again, seeing how that's connected to what they're actually hired to do is interesting as well. Like, do they actually think strategically about the impact they were supposed to have within that organization? What were some of the low points? And really interesting as well, Sophie mentioned, we might dive into references later, who are the people that you worked with? And the important thing here is to ask, is to actually get the names. Who were the individuals that you worked with? And there's this really interesting technique that the method recommends, which is when you're asking them for about who they worked with, say, when I speak to this person, what will they tell me about you? So the, what you're seeding in the candidate's head is you are going to get this reference. This is not just if I speak to them, what would they say? And then you can sort of get away with maybe embellishing some of the truth. I am going to speak to them. What are they going to say? It's a really interesting technique. I would say we don't do the who method ourselves either. We have a slightly different method for achieving the same thing. One of the interviews that I run at Meta, for example, is the proven ability to deliver impact interview. So most of the folks we hire that are more senior, we obviously want to know, well, what have they done in the past? So similar to what the who method is about. And what we ask them to do is just to focus on a single most proud achievement from their career so far. And we tell them upfront, I'm going to ask really detailed questions 
I almost want to feel like I was there with you in the moment and not know how you interacted. So I might ask you, who did you speak to then? What did they say? How did you communicate? Was it on Slack? Was it an email? Was it a presentation? Like really getting into the detail and you almost have to suspend yourself from the interview a little bit and just be genuinely curious. Your mission is to understand what exactly how this person behaved in this scenario. And that's really what I think the who method is about. We just have a slightly different way of doing it. So that question is, can you tell me about the thing you've worked on that you're most proud of your impact on is the question that we use in replacement of the who method. Can I just add one other tiny thing on this, which is, again, one of the things that Matt taught me, and I'm not so good at doing this, I find it really hard, but he used to talk about something called the ninja pause. Most of us like to fill the silence when mm. somebody stops speaking, and he would always encourage you to use a ninja pause where they finish their comments and you just wait and let them fill the silence because that's where you get these interesting moments where somebody actually tells you something that they weren't planning on telling you. And it's useful in interviews, but it's actually really useful in references. Yeah, that's super interesting. That makes me want to check MetaView's data and see which interviewers are using the Ninja Pause. It's not something we look for at the moment, but yeah, super interesting. Carlos oh. is doing the Ninja Pause. He's doing the Ninja Pause. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool yeah you know what who's very good at the ninja pause is carlos i was going to come on to asking about abstract questioning because i remember when i was trying to prepare for my seed camp interview it's going into my final with reshma and carlos and i asked natasha is there anything i can do to prepare for this and she said there's no way you can prepare so i knew i was in for an interesting one and i think one of Carlos's questioning was just very different to something I'd been asked. And I think one of the questions you asked me was, what would your TED Talks be? And I remember going off on a bit of a rant. Um, when I don't have an answer, I always tend to wither on. And I remember answering and Carlos just stopped. And then I changed my answer it's completely. <laughs> Actually, I, 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 sorry. Go ahead, Sophie. No, I was just going to say this thing about giving somebody feedback in an interview. Maybe we should pick up on that in a second. Now. Sorry, Carlos, mm. I cut you off on your answer. But I do think giving people feedback in an interview and seeing how they respond or giving them kind of a cue and seeing how they respond is a really interesting way to see how they're going to work with you in the future. So that was probably a great example of that in your interview. Yeah, maybe there's the a couple of things that we do when we interview, like within Seedcamp, and this obviously this interview isn't about how we interview at Seedcamp specifically, but it is an interesting transition for a question that hasn't come up yet, which is the interview process can also become a way for both parties to become aware of the culture organization through the questions, right? The questions that I generally ask when I interview colleagues are playful, but also insightful. And to some extent, that is the Seedcamp culture. And so I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on how you can adapt some of these methods into projecting and telegraphing some of the organizational culture so that it's evident to both parties that there is an element of that culture in the answer. Yeah, I can have a go, first of all. Obviously, the base camp for that question is always different, right? Because every organization is different. So there's not going to be any answer. Well, this is the question you need to ask to understand if someone's a good fit for your culture. The starting point for that is thinking from first principles about what is your culture and what are some signals that you believe shine a light on that attribute or characteristic that you believe to be an important part of your culture. So I do think it's a bit of an in-between answer, but it comes from truly understanding and taking the time to understanding your own culture and taking the time to think through what questions connect to that. Often, I also think that some of the almost more boring questions you can ask, things like when you ask someone, Sophie mentioned previously about when people move between jobs, like questions like, why did you make that decision? 
or when you're thinking about your future, what do you want next? It's not a sort of a very verbose or academic, intelligent, super sort of left field question, but they're very open-ended and really get to the heart of how people are thinking about their future in the case of what do you want next? That I find, and historically I've seen it quite a lot, that you end up getting a lot of signal about how someone thinks about things, which I guess is one of the best proxies we have for how they operate as well. Yeah, I'm a big believer in past experience is the best predictor of future experience or past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. I don't think people change that much. So getting an insight into how somebody behaves is going to give you the best indication of how they're going to behave in your organization. And you both talked about culture. I don't really love the word culture. I think culture is a thing, but it's really hard to assess for. I really focus on values fit. So all of our interviews focus on our company values. So right now, our company values are around curiosity and integrity and team excellence. When I'm interviewing people, I want to check that they're curious. Do they have good questions for me? Are they asking about the business? Do they want to understand more about the role, how they can be successful? Are they interested in the product? I also really care about intelligence. And intelligence isn't about academic achievement. It's about can they unpack something? So ever give them some insight into our business? Do they ask good questions about that? Do they conclude interesting things? Do they have ideas that come out of that they can share with me? Excellence. We talk about past behavior, but if somebody can give you examples of something extraordinary they've done, where they've gone above and beyond, whether that's caring for a younger sibling when their parents were working or cycling the length of Africa or even just being the first person in their family to pass their A-levels or something. These examples of excellence give you such a good indication of somebody's character, but also how they think about working. And then this thing about feedback, I think is so important because I don't know about all of you, but the times people haven't worked out for me have either been due to their motivations, their values alignment, or the fact they just can't take feedback. And I just can't work with somebody who's constantly going, well, it's not my fault or I can't do anything about that, or there's always a problem, not a solution. And I just know I'm not going to be able to work with someone like that. So being able to test that in the interview process, I think is so important. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think building on that, when you're coming to evaluating talent, so end of your pipeline, you've got a set of candidates, how much do you allow all those motivations to almost hit like the 100%? And then how much do you allow for development and like the ability for your managers to develop people to be the person that is going to best fit your organization, thinking about motivations and values. So I think this thing about do you hire for experience or do you hire for potential? Honestly, there's no right answer to it. I don't think there is. I think in certain situations, you really need the experience. You need that particular skill set in order to move the business forward. There's no point in hiring a finance director for potential. You need to hire a finance director who can make sure your books work and can manage that. If you're hiring a salesperson, past experience may not be as important as potential, as motivation, how easily you can train and develop them. I think skills can be taught, but it depends how comfortable you are with training them, how much time you have, how quickly you can get them up to speed. So again, I don't think there's any right answer on that, and it will depend on different roles. I think when it comes to the end of the process, this is where we probably want to double click in on references, because... Mm -hmm. I really believe that references ultimately are the most important part of the process. You want to make sure that the person can do the job. You want to make sure that you like the person and you can work with them and you think their values aligned. You want to make sure that they're motivated and excited about the role, all that kind of thing. But I think references are super important for really getting a clear picture. And one of the things I think we haven't talked about in the interview process yet is just giving someone a short take home. 
we always give everyone a short take home at the garden and we did it at multiverse and we did it at hired as well and the reason for that i normally do it sort of after the second stage so it's the third stage before maybe like a final founder interview or something the reason i give them a short take home is again it's a good motivation check how excited are people to do it how much effort do they put into it it gives me an opportunity to see how they think but really importantly for me i really want to see attention to detail one of my personal bugbears is sloppy work And again, this is about like, how am I going to be able to work with this person? So if somebody hasn't put in punctuation or has spelling mistakes in their work, I know it's going to be a flag for me going forward. So I normally make sure it only takes about 20 minutes, maximum half an hour. I never want it to take more time than that and to be an actual good indication of what they're going to be doing day to day in the job. But I do think some sort of take home or some sort of practical is really valuable in the interview process. Definitely. I think the case study is probably my favorite part of an interview. We encourage it across quite a lot of our startups where, especially if they're hiring maybe like a lead to run a vertical, giving them the question of what are you going to do in your first 30, 60, 90 days and leaving it that ambiguous to see how they come in and how they approach because you get a real natural indicator of how someone can tackle the problem. But then yes, you can also try and test for personality and fit quite well with that when you critique their response. When you're talking about case studies, are you suggesting that people give hypothetical situations or more practical, this is a scenario that's happened in the past, how would you deal with it? Because I think that in my mind, they test different things. For our stage of company, especially if we have maybe less experienced founders, I like to try and make it as realistic as possible. So actually take a problem that you're facing in the company right now and then plan scale. I think it massively helps with decision-making and trying to reduce as much ambiguity as possible in early hiring is so critical, I think, for success. The final question I'd like to ask on this evaluation piece is how do you best structure the decision-making process when it comes to hiring? Who owns responsibility? And something that is talked about like scorecards or you've got the thumb up to the side, thumb down process. What are your opinions on that? Yeah, lots of opinions. And I think it, again, varies on a couple of vectors. One is stage of company. So how large you are as a company. And the other is role. So is this a high volume role? Let's say a software engineer that you're going to hire 200 of a year. And to an extent, every human is a unique snowflake, but you want the skill set at least to be interchangeable and to be flexible if you decide to spin up a new team. Or is this a relatively exotic role? You're hiring a CMO. You hope to only hire one in the next four or five years. They're going to work very closely with the CEO and their personal working relationship is really important. So obviously you take a different approach depending on those factors. Overall, I'm a proponent of extending hiring manager ownership of decision, still on them to gather opinions and drive consensus if it's important to them. But fundamentally having an owner of the decision, I think is a really powerful thing, especially sort of when you're talking about not huge companies, just because then it's a shared goal for that person to then do amazing work. And you're super motivated to make sure they're enabled to do great work within your team. But still, of course, expect there to be what we'd call the wash up or a debrief. Usual recommendation is to do that in a way where people reveal their preference or their recommendation on the candidate at the same time. I think that's a good practice. I do think it's more of a bug than a feature that we all make our recommendations without all the information. So you think about every other business decision you make, before you try and make a decision, you'll try and make sure everyone has shared context about all the information we have to make this decision. 
hiring seems to be this weird case where we say, let's try and make sure everyone has their own separate information and then they can make their recommendation. And then only then will we have a discussion about this. So, so I do think there's a little bit of a bug in the process there, which I think a lot of things can solve, including some of the stuff that we're working on. But overall, I think it's interesting to get people's first reflections after the interview without being sort of polluted with maybe more senior people's thoughts. But I do think you should then bring all the evidence to the table and have that collaborative discussion just as you would around any other business decision, but place the decision-making with one directly responsible individual who we'd call the hiring manager. Before you jump in, I just wanted to conclude one point that Sile made. There's a great resource that MetaView put out called Interview Training That Raises the Bar. We'll share the resource in the show notes, and it's expert advice from several other founders and, and people in the hiring space and chapters on how to improve the skill set of your interviewers. So, Sophie. I was just going to add to that. I think in this more remote world, it's really important to make sure that when somebody interviews a candidate, they write up their notes. And obviously, I think MetaView takes the notes for you. So that's great. You don't have to spend hours writing. But sharing the written notes around after the interview is really important. You can do that in different ways. To Sal's point, you sometimes that might be a case of holding on to your notes and then sharing them at the end. But The written version is really important, both from a reflection point of view, it reminds you of the things that you actually heard, but didn't really understand at the time. But it also, I think, forces you to be really clear on your justification. Again, there is this confirmation bias. I had a good interview, or I didn't have a great interview with that person, but they did say these things. I think sometimes we get over biased by how good the interview was, how much we liked that person. And actually, the liking that person or not liking that person is not a good reason to hire somebody or not hire them. Everyone has bad days, different personalities clash, this kind of thing. So I think that's really important. And again, what it also means is that the founders can read all those interview notes. And at the early stages of the company, I think founders should be reading all the interview notes. Ultimately, it's their company and the buck stops with them. I interviewed every single person at Multiverse until we got to 100 people. Ewan and I both interviewed every single person, sorry, up to 100 people. And then after 100 people, one of us interviewed every single person. And now I think they still have that founder interview or at least an executive interview because you need to have that final person go yes or no. And having that veto right is really important, I think, as a founder, because you're building the culture of the company. I said the culture is an amorphous thing, but you are building the culture. And so you have to be able to say, right, yes, I know that this person's great, but for these reasons, I don't think that we should hire them. Yeah, yeah. and completely agree, Sophie. That's a really awesome point. I think founders and folks who are in it for the real long haul are the people who really care about the power of talent density. They're the folks who care about still having an amazing team next year so that they can still hire amazing people next year as well because they meet amazing people during their interview process. So completely agree on that veto right. But I still think making the case that this is the right person for this role, given the idiosyncrasies of the things that we need right now to get to where we want to go, is good to put in the hands of the hiring manager. Awesome. And then I guess it'd be great to move on to scale and transitioning periods and Sophie, what I'd love to dive into is multiverse. And as you grew multiverse, I think it's now, is it around 400 employees? I think they're over 600 now. Over 600. Wow, exactly. So the different stages of company building as you start off and you have this amazing talent, you've hired these great people. How do you develop talent to scale with you as a company? And at what point do you have to identify maybe where this talent is not going to scale? and how you manage that process and that conversation. 
And, and maybe, Sophie, just to give it a little bit of extra backdrop, especially for the audience who's listening to this as we're recording it in July, this is an interesting time for the entire tech industry as where many companies are going through massive layoffs at the moment. And so sometimes it's also about how to manage that process of evaluating who remains and how to manage morale, who to select from a team to remain versus not, and actually looking at the windows of opportunity for transitioning toxic people out as well. So it's a lot to unpack there. Let's try the sort of transitioning through and then the transitioning out is two separate things. So the transitioning through, I think there are different breakpoints in a company's growth, right? There's the sort of up 20 people, then there's a 50 person breakpoint, there's probably a hundred person breakpoint, and then there's, I don't know, 200 person. There are all these breakpoints in a company's growth and you feel it, you feel the company feels different. The way that people interact is different. The kinds of people who work are different. And early on, the first 10 to 20 people, you absolutely need to hire amazing people, but sometimes you don't have the option to hire incredibly experienced talent. You sometimes need to bring on young, hungry people who maybe need to be given a lot of free reign to try things. And some of those people scale and some of them don't. And I think the way I think about it and the way I talk to those early hires, particularly at Multiverse in the first couple of years, we couldn't necessarily hire people who'd worked at places like Uber and and been through those scale journeys. And actually, they wouldn't necessarily have been the right people for us. What we needed was young, hungry, scrappy people who kind of wanted to get stuff done. And so when those people, I talked to them about it being a learning experience, like come in here and suck up the experience. You can learn from me. I'm going to give you a lot of rope to try different things. These are my expectations of you in terms of hustle and outcomes, but you're going to grow and stretch. And then I'm going to support you in whatever you want to go to next. And this, you may decide to stay here and we may find other opportunities for you, or there may not be other opportunities at the end of that. And then I'm going to help and support you go on to the next thing. But there are these break points. People start to feel they're either hitting that point where then they're seeing people come above them and then maybe they feel that they're not valued as much. It's about how do you help those people go on to the next thing? Because it is a small community, even in places like San Francisco, where you've got lots of tech people, it's still a small community and you will end up working with those people in the future. So I always think it's about building and developing those relationships and thinking about how you do that. And as we talk about those different stages of the company, at an early stage, you can't train people. You can't put in place training programs. I don't have the time to train somebody. So it's about giving them, you know, maybe slightly more directive. This is what I need from you. And then this is where I want you to play an experiment. And then this is some feedback, direct feedback on what you're doing. Why don't you try this? That didn't work. That didn't land. That's okay. That's not a problem that you sent that email with three typos but don't do it again because this is the impact on the business. And so I think you have to give much more in the moment training rather than putting in place like some wonderful training program. However, once you get to a certain scale, and I think this is what we were experiencing in Multiverse, probably about six, eight months before I left, one of the things that we were really focused on was scaling sales. And we hired an amazing VP of sales who brought in an incredible sales leaders and he was really focused. Steve is still there doing an amazing job focused on how do we build and train salespeople from the ground up, build in a process that works, develop sales leaders, and put that kind of velocity in place. And that's only something you can do later on. There is no point doing it when you're 10 people, because everyone needs to be T-shaped. So that's 
a little bit my thought about startup transitions through the company. I mean, do you want me to pause there and you guys, I don't know whether you have any reflections on any. So, I don't know if you want to comment on that and then we can move to transitioning out. My only comment on that really is I think the language around this stuff is really important, which is I think sometimes it hasn't been present in this conversation at all, but sometimes people will talk about it as if it's like a failure not to be able to move to that next stage of the transit. But equally, this VP, I don't know, Steve, obviously, but maybe if he had been brought in when you were 10 people, he also would have been a failure. So I think that can make your life a lot easier when the language is consistently correct about how you think about or consistently accurate around how you think about one element of being able to scale is not necessarily a positive. There are some amazing operators who very deliberately own the fact that they are amazing in the early stages and they go seeking those opportunities and they have incredible impact in their career. So yeah, I think the language is really important to sort of take some of the ego out of it, basically, like as if it's not a failure necessarily. Of course, that's like a little bit wishful thinking. I think there's always going to be some cases where there's a mismatch. Someone might perceive that they can do this thing and you don't. That's obviously uncomfortable and it happens, but I still think you can soften the blow a bit with being consistent in how you talk about things. Yeah, that's a very good point, Sile. And it just reminds me of the importance of setting expectations early. It's not just once they're in trying to do it. It's also specifically, you know, we have it all the time when, when it comes to very specific roles within the team that aren't necessarily obvious to enter into a fund management role and trying to figure out how to not have people feel discouraged that they're not part of the fund management process when they're part of another process. And it's having to be very clear about the value they bring independent of the fact that, you know, in the same thing would happen in a company. If you're not part of the sales team, you're not part of the leadership team. You can sometimes feel like there isn't pathway there, but that doesn't necessarily mean their role isn't critical. And within that, there isn't an ability to scale. But I I wanted to- Just one one thing on that, Carlos, I think just there's a very specific language that I think really resonates around this, which is, I think it's a Reed Hoffman thing. It may well come before that, but he talks about the idea that initially you want Marines to sort of get a beachhead on an opportunity, basically. Then you need the army to come on, sort of set up the systems, and then you police that opportunity. And actually, when if you look at the, those words, I think more people want to be Marines than want to be police, maybe. So actually, that's like a very, you can invert the sort of the perception. And really, when you're very early stage, you're looking to hire these Marines who can get that beachhead. And then as you scale, you sort of transition through that. And when you put it like that, it sounds very natural that you would have a different set of people doing those jobs yeah i like that alex i don't know if you agree with that those specific regiments uh, in that order but hey. alex has a military background he might have okay <laughs> oh we don't have enough time to get into that but it's, yeah, no, it's, it's a very interesting anecdote <laughs> okay so let's go into i think a very sensitive part of it which is transitioning out and, and as i said and i shared with you sophie there's two things that are going on at the moment and sometimes they're intertwined you know Companies, when they're growing, can sometimes have a challenge with wanting to have as many people as possible to scale up. But within it, sometimes people are not necessarily the right people. And so what do you recommend in terms of managing people out and find them early rather than the usual sort of advice of three months? How do you set that up in a productive way? Yeah, I do believe in probation periods being a really important step in evaluating that, you know, it's a and I communicate that to people that the, this is a period for us to decide whether it's right fit for us and for you to decide whether it's right fit for you. And there's no harm, no foul if it doesn't work out. Like that's the whole point of a probation period. I do put in place checkpoints for the manager to check in with that person at two months, at four months. We do four months probation periods. My feeling is you should know whether somebody's probably going to work out after six weeks. Like you should have a really strong view after six weeks, whether somebody's going to work out. And then it's a case of being honest with them about why it's not working and giving them the opportunity to change. 
if it's a performance related thing. But if it's a personality thing or a culture fit thing, my feeling is that it's probably not going to work out. You can still give it time, but the longer you leave it, the more it's going to cause damage within the organization. Other, you've got to remember, your other members of your team see if somebody's not working. They can see if that person isn't pulling their weight. They can see that they're not a values fit. And they may not want you to let them go because most team members feel that, you know, if you let somebody go, it's going to impact that person's career. They feel bad for them. They might not want them to be let go because it's going to create more work for them. But they also don't really love the fact that we have a person who's not working in the team. And I think as the founder or as the CEO or head of people, your job is to say, I know it's going to be short term pain, but it's going to be long term gain by moving this person out. And then you do it, I think, with compassion. And compassion is you're going to be more successful somewhere else. So let's discuss how we can either help you find your next thing or whatever. But you need to be really clear that this is your decision, that it's not working out and therefore they're going to be leaving. But you want to help them and you understand this is not what they wanted to hear, but it's the right thing for the company and ultimately it's going to be the right thing for them. And there are different ways to handle it. If you're firing somebody, obviously you need to do it as a proper conversation where you let somebody go. And I would always advocate if you're firing somebody to walk them out the door, even the remote door and turn everything off that day because you just don't want to deal with the consequences. But if you're dealing with a senior person and it's just not working, it's just not where you wanted to go. I think handling that conversation as grown-ups and saying, this isn't working, is it? And actually sometimes opening with, this isn't really working, is it? allows them the opportunity to say yeah no it's not really I just it's not really what I thought I signed up for or I don't really feel that I can bring my best or something else and then it's a much easier conversation because then you're like yeah cool well let's work out how we make this transition easier but I think having these conversations and making the call is the job of the founder it is so important to build your company in a way that brings in great people who work well together because as you started off by saying carlos it's 95% the people yeah well sophie i know that you need to run off i'll uh, we'll carry on for a little bit longer i want to hear your take on this but i just wanted to take a quick pause and thank you sophie for joining us and we'll catch up in person sometime soon and guys, feel free to reach out to Sophie. We'll put all her details, her companies, and her on Twitter on the show notes. Thanks again, Sophie. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Sophie. Bye. Continuing on this thread, we have an opportunity to go a little bit deeper into the interviewer training playbook as well. Walk us through what your take is on what's going on right now in terms of not only layoffs, but how to manage them, how to identify people that would be proud of that process, maybe comment on some what Sophie said. And if you set things up right in the interview process early yeah. days, how this might be something that can be handled better. Yeah, I think the way Sophie described actually handling the conversations was spot on. It's a very human conversation. So you want to be authentic in that moment too. And so people might choose a sort of a different set of words or a different opening line or whatever it might be. But the key thing, which sounds really obvious, but you'd be amazed how frequently you hear it not happening, is to make sure that the two people that are part of that conversation know what has been decided in that meeting, which is this person is leaving the company. Like that has to be really clear. And that wasn't sort of like, hey, we're just, you know, thinking that maybe it's not working out and maybe things will change. No, the decision has been made. And that's actually a phrase that I've received advice around using in those types of conversations. The decision has been made. So we're not debating the decision or analyzing whether this is the right decision. The decision has been made. And obviously, as the person pushing the transition, uh, doing the firing, you are burning your bridge at that point. You are committing to that decision. You're not going to lose sleep over, is this the right decision anymore? The decision is made. And that you want to get that across to the employee as well. So that's the only thing I can really add, I think, to what Sophie described there. 
When you think about the broader macro of the round of layoffs going on, obviously, again, every company is different and has their own reasons. Some are forecasting problems and changing plan accordingly. Others are realizing that actually their previous hiring plan was wrong and is actually they're burning too much cash and they need to change something quickly and reduce their burn. Those are two related but quite different situations. And I think there's this third population of companies as well that are just (laughs) at least partially using it as an opportunity for a reset. We've been in an incredibly candidate-centric market for a long time. And what that has meant is every organization that's been trying to grow quick has had this unfortunate pull to be a little bit vanilla in how they present themselves to candidates, because that's the only chance they have of hiring as many as they need to. And I think what people are doing now is putting pay to that, what we call slapdash approach to hiring, which is, hey, let's just hire quickly and tell candidates whatever they want to hear and hope that they accept our offer. And then suddenly I've grown my team. Isn't that great? You're not going to build great talent density. And the truly transformational companies, even during this high growth time, have not been doing that. Yeah, that's what we think of as slapdash hiring. I think a lot of companies are realizing that they've got a lot of people in the organization who aren't all necessarily moving the needle forward in the way that they need to go and are reacting accordingly. And I think where the interview process comes in is in essentially making sure that those folks that are involved in those interviews, everyone from the recruiters through to the interviewers themselves, the hiring managers, and then whatever senior executive or founder that's at the end of the line, understand what's at stake when you make this decision. It is this person's life, really, like in, in, that sounds maybe a little bit grandiose, but if they're going to work with you for the next three to four years, that's a big chunk of their career, big chunk of their opportunity. If it turns out it's a bad fit, you've really put a ding on their resume. And that's like, you should take that seriously. And secondly, it's a lot of your company's opportunity too, because now you're going to have fewer butts in seats that most organizations are taking a more deliberate approach to who they're hiring. So suddenly every hire is a high priority hire. And the folks that are involved in actually making the decision need to start to understand that. And so that's the transition that we think needs to happen. Obviously, you'd love it to happen more naturally rather than this sort of artificial economic environment that has pushed it. But I actually think it might be a good thing for the talent density of the top companies. Yeah. And maybe Alex, I'll get some of your advice on this as well, because I know you've been helping some of our founders with this. I think the only thing I'll add to that is that if a founder is considering a round of of layoffs, that it's better to go deep and quick rather than drip feed it over time, because otherwise it'll create a morale erosion. I think people can recover from a very clear reason why things are happening and why certain people are coming and going. Versus it's harder if that keeps on happening because it sort of evokes a feeling of fear long-term and lack of trust there. So Alex, I don't know if you had any concluding thoughts there. Yeah, I think Sile touched on it. I think it's incredibly important to help your team understand that, you know, you have to be human. These are people's lives. And when we're in a macro environment like we are today, it's just as important we have to remember that you're dealing with people and you have to support your teams. You know, reputationally, you've seen companies collapse through bad redundancy processes. I've had to make my team redundant before. It's a horrible process, but leaning on everyone you can, use your internal recruitment team if you have one to help support and help find people's next opportunity or your recruitment partners. Utilize your investors, reach out to people like me if your investor have one and set up these lists if your employees are happy to. I think this has actually been a really good practice and helps get people that want to be put out on the market at scale, get in front of the right people. And there's a lot more the companies can do to support. And yeah, it's important to do that. Excellent. All right. That concludes this episode. Thank you so much, Sal, for joining us. I think we've covered a lot. We could continue covering up. There's so many little nuances Mm -hmm. 
that this is actually a very complicated topic. And it's one that probably people will have to play back multiple times in different ways. Like fast forward to the end when things are not going well, fast forward to the beginning when you're trying to think of things. Thanks for joining us, Sal. Do you have any parting comments regarding resources that you guys have available that people can use to maybe circumvent some of the learning? Yeah, absolutely. Would love for folks to, if you are looking to get deliberate about your hiring, check out metaview.ai. As you said, we're all about helping ambitious companies uh, run amazing interviews. So if that sounds like something you want to do, we should chat. But other than that, it's been a pleasure to chat with you both and Sophie as well. Excellent. All right, Alex, thanks for co-hosting on this one. I look forward to doing more. And Sal, thanks again. See you later, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye, sir.